just to help listen to some kids quote their verses, to go through their workbooks, uh, to engage with them. I know that a lot of the adults come away with that with more than the kids do, and uh, it's encouraging just to see how God's Word not only is taking effect in their lives, but also those of us who are listening to those verses. So do consider that and pray about those opportunities. Um, we would love to, to see you serving uh, in one place or another, and that's just one of those. Another opportunity that we have coming up is our upcoming series. Uh, you'll see that in your bulletin. We have a sermon panel on the, the left side called The Story, and uh, it's going to be a program that we're going to be going through for the next few months. The idea is to, uh, to help us have a little bit of a structure to how the Bible is put together. There's a lot of people that have never read through the Bible that are familiar with what the Bible is, but haven't ever opened it up. They don't know Jesus Christ. They don't know the things that are in it. And um, a lot of us even, we, we look at the Bible and we get overwhelmed with some of the, um, the figures of speech and the history and a lot of the, the names even, and some of that can get a little bit overwhelming. And so our objective over this next few months, starting on September 18th, is to, to follow the, the central line that goes through that story and to help us as a, as a congregation, but also our visitors, to build a little bit of a structure um, to how things are put together. Rather than trying to put the roof on before we put up the framework, uh, we want to help people understand, you know, how, do, how does the Bible put together? What's the main storyline? And just like Jesus did on the road to Emmaus, uh, pointing people to how the law and the prophets and all the different parts of the Scripture point to Christ. And so uh, I want to encourage you once again, if you have some neighbors, some friends, family members uh, that would benefit from that, this is a great opportunity to invite others to church, to be a part of that, and uh, that would be a great um, place for them to, to uh, step on board and uh, be praying about that. Last week, I encouraged you to be thinking of, of two to three people, I think I said, bump it up to five. Um, think, think of a few people in your life. It can be your next door neighbor. It could be somebody down the street, somebody you work with. I've already talked to some of you who've, who've already been doing that and have already been inviting some of your friends and your coworkers. Um, be thinking about those people in your life that might benefit from this and, um, and be praying for them. Uh, and then just watch what God does in their life. Let's pray and let's ask God to bless our time on, on His Word. Time in His Word. Father, we, we thank You for, once again, for this time that we have to gather together as believers. This time to gather together and to worship, to teach, to learn, to sing praises, to pray, to fellowship. Um, this is beautiful when your people gather together. It's beautiful when, when your people are changed by your word. It's beautiful when you receive praises and, and we acknowledge your greatness. And so we are thankful this morning that we get the opportunity to be a part of your church. I pray that you would bless the remainder of our time here as we worship to together today. As we turn our attention to your word, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that, that the thoughts in my mind would reflect the thoughts that are communicated by your word and I pray that you would help my lips to accurately convey those thoughts both from my own head and also more importantly from what scripture says and so might these words be true to what you teach us and I pray that you would bless this time that would change our lives see in your name we ask these things amen well, as many of you knew I grew up in Colorado I come from a family of pioneers, mountain men, explorers that were some of the first settlers in the foothills of, of western slope of Colorado. My grandfather grew up farming under the foothills of the western Co Colorado mountains. 
and then later on he raised his own family there. Uh, one of the rites of passage that I grew up with is, it was a family tradition that we had in the, the Kiefer, my mother's side of the household. Um, the Kiefers had a family tradition of climbing Mount Sneffels. Not Sniffles, but Sneffels. It's the 27th highest peak in Colorado. And my cousins and my parents, to some extent, made fun of me when I grew up because I never had made the trek. I wasn't officially part of the family, apparently. Uh, I never grew, I never actually uh, climbed Mount Sneffels when I grew up. But finally, when I was in my 20s or maybe early 30s, I had the opportunity to climb Mount Sniffles with our youth group uh, that I led in uh, Parachute, Colorado. And so we made our way to Mount Sniffles. We, we drove up the pass. Uh, we got there to the Yankee Boy Basin, and the day was beautiful. And uh, the drive to the base was uneventful. No falling rocks, no people jumping off cliffs. Uh, it was a good day. Uh, so we hiked to the initial face. Uh, we scaled the mountainside, and then we reached the saddle where the final ascent begins. And as we looked over the ridge both ways, we could see the early afternoon clouds that were starting to kind of roll in. And here we are near the top of this mountain, and we decided that we could press on and we could probably complete the last final 600 feet of elevation in about an hour. And we did. Uh, we ate lunch at uh, 4,150 feet, um, but then that's when the fun started to begin. The first thing that happened, you know, after we took a few pictures, uh, one of our students, um, the, the kid just to the right behind me, he came up to me and he said, I forgot my inhaler. I have asthma. I said, I probably don't need it, but just in case, and thankfully he didn't need it, but uh, that started us on a, a, another adventure. And so we began to hear uh, in the far distance, right after he said that, um, some thunder. And so I prodded everyone to head back down the mountain. And it's at that time that one of my leaders came up to me and he said, hey, I'm getting reception on my cell phone. Now, you have to understand, this is, this is back in 2000, so maybe one in 20 or 30 of us actually had a cell phone. This is one of those phones, you know, you flipped it open and it had this long extension, this long antenna that came out of it. It looks more like a walkie-talkie than an actual cell phone. And he was so excited because he hadn't had reception all week, and, and here we were on top of this 14er in Colorado, and he was getting reception. And so he wanted to call a friend, and I said, okay, but hurry, you need to get down. We hadn't made it 200 feet when we heard the first crash of lightning and the thunder that echoed above us. Uh, my youth leader uh, passed me up within five minutes. Running down the mountain, his hair was standing on end. Uh, he was a little bit more anxious to get down than I was even. The problem before us, however, was that as we went down that ravine, uh, we were about to emerge from that goalie that had been sheltering us from some of the rain that was starting. And as we descended, our entire group was about to come out on what we called the saddle. And we were going to be exposed there. And the saddle is composed of several layers of iron and mineral deposits. And we're only going to be there for a, a couple minutes, but we knew that we had to get off of that as soon as possible. And from there, we were going to have to descend almost 1,000 feet of shale on the face of the side of the mountain. And it was while we were on the saddle that the lightning began to hit the mountain above us. And then the rain began to downpour. What had taken us almost two hours to ascend, uh, we slid down on our backside of our jeans for in about 20 minutes. We were wet, we were cold, we were dirty, we were sore. And what we longed for was some sort of refuge. 
I was thinking, you know, there's some old abandoned mine shafts down at the bottom of the hill. Maybe we could find one of those and run into a cave as soon as possible. Something that was a shelter, something that was dry. The shale turned to mud, the rocks became slippery, the storm above us continued to grow more intense, and, and exposed out there in the open, all we longed for was some sort of refuge where we could find shelter from the rain and the possible lightning which we could still hear on the other side of the mountain peak. Eventually the storm moved on and we found our way to our shelter and the warmth of our vehicle that was parked at the beginning of the trailhead, a nice suburban that was ready there waiting for us. In the midst of the rain and the lightning, it was a sure help in a time of need. We relieved our hunger, our thirst, and began to, to dry and warm ourselves as our refuge carried us to the hot springs in the town below, down in Uray, Colorado. You know, often in life, we, we find ourselves in circumstances that, that just barrage us with all of life's storms. And like a descent from Mount Sniffles, we, we long for a place of safety. We long for a place of calm. Psalm 46 also teaches us about the benefits of a strong refuge. And so please turn there with me today. Psalm 46, as we look at this psalm that was written probably in the days of Hezekiah. Now the psalm itself was written by or for a group of priests uh, again, who are probably living in the days of King Hezekiah. Perhaps the words themselves were penned by Hezekiah, or perhaps they were penned by the prophet Isaiah. Uh, the sons of Korah, which are mentioned at the beginning of this psalm, uh, were temple musicians. Uh, they would take poetry that was written by some of the prophets and the kings and some of themselves, and they, they wrote songs. Uh, they wrote music to go with the songs that were written by others. And they wrote this song, or put music to it, and it's told that it's for the music leader. Probably it was set to a tune that was written for the harp or for young women. So imagine for yourself as we read through these passages, a high-pitched strumming or a chorus of sopranos singing from over 2,700 years ago as we read through today's passage. The psalmist begins, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. The first section of this psalm begins with a statement of, of confidence regarding the God who helps us. He is to us a refuge and strength. And the combination of these, these two words that he uses here, refuge and strength, it's, it's a figure of speech. It's an ancient figure of speech, which it's still used today. We call hendiades. And just for the fun of it, say it with me, hendiades. Wasn't that cool? You got it. First try. Um, Shakespeare used it almost 70 times in Hamlet, but long before the English poet was, uh, realized the power of hendiades, the Bible capitalized on its usage all over the place. You'll see this. And basically it means two for one, hendiades, two for one. Uh, you have two words that are connected by the word and that are alluding to a bigger idea than each of the words themselves express. For example, uh, what does it mean to rant and rave? That's hendiades. Or huff and puff, another form of hendiades. If I said that the fire is hot, what would you think? Be careful, it burns, right? But what if I said the fire is nice and hot? 
You see, I like the fire being hot. It's warming me up. I just came down from a mountain and I'm, and I'm warming up by it. I'm cold and I, and I need this nice and hot fire. It's a comfort to me. And so Hendiades takes those two words that can mean two different concepts, combines them together to mean something bigger. And he's doing the same thing here in Psalms. For example, God uses Hendiades back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. A lot of you women are going to relate to this. When he said to the woman, I will greatly increase your pain and childbearing. Now, without Hendiades, these two issues are separate, and, and, and we would think that women are going to experience the curse of pain and also the curse of childbearing. Is, is that what he's saying? I mean, no, childbearing, having children is wonderful. Uh, now, some women would agree with that statement that, that both are a curse. Uh, but uh, without the figure of speech, it would insinuate that childbearing is a process that doesn't involve any pain. And, and we know that's right, correct, ladies? No, no. Bearing children can be a great blessing, though, but the curse that was involved in Genesis 3 was that women, the woman would experience greater pain in childbearing to the point that Eve even said, I almost died doing that, but God helped me. And so one more example we find in Jeremiah 29. The prophet gives a promise from God where he says, I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Two different words that are connected by the word and. You see, God didn't just promise the captives a future. They already had that, didn't they? They saw the future and they were afraid of it. It didn't look good. They had a future already. And he didn't just promise them hope. You see, they had already been hoping while they watched their their city burned and their people slaughtered in the streets. But God says, I'm, I'm planning on giving you a future and a hope, a, a hope-filled future. He offers them something where the future is in, they have a, can have a confidence that rests in His restoration of them after this time, a future and a hope. So going back to our psalm, God is our refuge and strength. And the point is that God is not just a refuge for us, he is more than our strength. The psalmist is confidently declaring that God is a safe place, a strong refuge, a shelter that will not crumble or be destroyed. When our church group descended from the summit of Mount Sneffels, we, we longed for the refuge of our carriage on wheels. But, but even that involved a four-wheel drive down uh, a dangerous cliffside road over, over a 200-foot uh, canyon. Uh, later, uh, when we finally were warming ourselves in the safety of the hot springs, the lifeguards came out and they said, everybody out of the pool. And we saw the lightning come in and, and we had to get out of the water again because the storm had returned and there was further danger. But our God, though, He is a strong refuge. But the psalmist goes on and he explains further what he means by this. You see, God is a help in trouble. And over time, He has been found to be abundantly so. Some of your translations may read a very present help. Perhaps a, an ever-present help. And again, the idea behind the word is that He has proven Himself over and over and over and over again. Not only in our lives, but in the lives of those that have come before us. And so for thousands of years, people have seen how God is an ever-present help in times of trouble. Literally, you could translate this, that He has been found to be a help in distress. Very much so. So there we were at the base of Mount Sneffels. Uh, there's an old mine that we used to explore when I was a kid. 
I don't know if we were supposed to be exploring it, but we did. And um, it, it could serve as a refuge when the storms would come. Uh, but not far from the entrance of that cave, uh, the cave was blocked off because this refuge that over time had crumbled. It, it started caving in and it was dangerous to go further inside. It proved less than strong. And so aren't you thankful that we have a refuge and a shelter that's been proven through the most difficult periods of human history? That we have a refuge in our God who has proven Himself to be a proven help for the days of distress? But these musicians that are writing this psalm want you to remember something that should happen as a result of how truly our God is with us in our distress. The psalmist goes on to say, therefore we will not fear. You see, if our God is truly a strong refuge, if He is truly has proven Himself as a help that stays with us, then, then we will not fear. The song goes on to describe some extraordinary hypothetical circumstances. Uh, most of us haven't seen these things happen. Uh, you see, to the Israelites, however, uh, they lived in the mountains. Not mountains like Colorado, but they were, they were mountains with, with hills and caves and, and, and ravines and valleys. And they'd experienced earthquakes in those mountains, but, but they, those people found security there in the mountains. Furthermore, the Israelites were very unfamiliar with how to navigate the dangers of the sea. The, the waters represented the most chaotic, and the most uncertain of circumstances. And so when you read of, of the waters uh, in the Old Testament, you have to think from an Israelite perspective that that's scary out there. We don't go out on boats because we don't know how to use them. And there's monsters out there and there's storms out there. And if you get further away from where you can see the land, then you're just dead. And, and so um, with this in mind, the psalm presents four hypothetical attacks that would tempt anybody to be afraid. He, say, he says, even though the earth gives way, you see, if, if the land that stands below us is moved, we will not fear. Even though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, the, the sea has always had its boundaries, and it comes, to, it comes no further than God allows it. But even if the sea crossed that boundary, and even if the sea covered everything that the Israelites found secure and safe, we will not fear. Even though its waters roar and foam, the sea makes noise and makes foam as its waves crash and attack. Even though the mountains tremble at its swelling, earthquakes and armies may shake the ground that we find our shelter on. Even if the things around us which make us feel the safest, the things around us that make us the most secure, even if all of those things are removed, we will not fear. But why? Because our God is a strong refuge. Because our God has proven Himself as one who is present with those who are in trouble. In Psalm's next stanza, a transition takes place from the turmoil of the sea and it's raging waters, and he changes it from the picture of that turmoil to the tranquility of a, of a peaceful river, to a tranquility of a river that supplies our needs. As I mentioned earlier, the psalm was quite, um, quite likely written in the days of King Hezekiah and, and the prophet Isaiah. Uh, it's in the days where King Sennacherib of Assyria had come in. He brought his army to the doorstep of Jerusalem with around 200,000 soldiers. 
He threatened the leaders and the people of the, from the outside of its walls. You can read about the story in three different Old Testament passages. Uh, 46 towns and villages had been pillaged and destroyed by the army. People had been taken captive, and, and by all human perspectives, this huge army that was gathered outside the walls of Jerusalem showed that it was only a matter of time before the city was going to fall as well. In the early verses of the psalm, which made reference to the earth being moved, uh, it might actually even be a reference to this army that's gathered outside its walls. Uh, you see, as they were behind the safety of their walls and the people from the surrounding villages ran into the, to that safety, uh, they may have heard the rumbles of, of that army and the chariots that were coming close. And when Sennacherib's great army came with its chariots and its siege works, the psalm declares, God is our strong refuge. And though the mountains quake and its swelling pride, it was almost this picture that as the armies came, it was as if the mountains and the entire earth was shaking. And so it was under circumstances such as these that Hezekiah and Isaiah turned to God and they pleaded for His help. Listen to what was written in 2 Kings chapter 19. 2 Kings 19, it records this about those circumstances. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and he read it. And then he went up to the temple of the Lord and he spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by men's hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from His hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that You alone, O Lord, are God. And so it was, under, it was also under circumstances such as these that the psalmist continues with these words, and it might even be those same circumstances that he said, there's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. Now, growing up in western Colorado, I, I learned the importance of living next to a river. Uh, essentially, the city I was raised in was in the middle of the desert. If you, if you went out to western Colorado, it's just barren. There's, there's sage and uh, you know, every once in a while the rain comes in and the, the, the cactuses flower. Uh, but it's, it's a barren desert. A lot of it has salt in it, so nothing grows there. Uh, and essentially, the city that I was raised in was in the middle of this desert, but, but running through the middle of that valley on the western slope was the very important Colorado River. And all around the city that I grew up in was all this sand and salt. Very little could, could live in its harsh conditions. But the river's streams provided life wherever it reached and we would dig canals all the way across that valley and those those canals would water farms and potatoes and beets and, and other crops would flourish grass corn peaches apples that that river brought great life to that valley the area that we live in here we know the great benefits of, of living by a great river like the mississippi and all of its tributaries that bring life to all of our different neighborhoods and all of our different villages and towns but Jerusalem, it doesn't have a river like that. There are no rivers running through Jerusalem or by Jerusalem or around Jerusalem. 
The tribes of Israel settled in the mountains far above the Jordan River Valley. So that leaves the question, what are these streams that the psalmist is referring to which makes, make glad the city of God, Jerusalem? What streams might he be talking about? I believe there, there's three possibilities. Uh, the first possibility is that the psalmist might just be speaking metaphorically. He, he's the, the, verse 4, is, it might be a metaphor, and the psalmist is referring to God Himself. The One who provides for the people. Number two, the river it possibly could, he could be referring to a future water supply that will come from, from Jerusalem itself during the millennial reign of Christ. Uh, that river had been, uh, isn't going to be prophesied for another hundred years, but this may be an early, an early prophecy of, of that. Ezekiel's going to talk about it. Uh, a river that will come right from the temple itself as a stream, and that stream will go out, and, and by the time it reaches the walls and the, and the, the the exterior of Jerusalem, it's going to be a mighty river that will fill the Dead Sea. And so that might be what he's referring to. Or the third possibility is that the psalmist might be referring to the remarkable supply of water which God provided to the Jews that were living during the siege, during the invasion of the Assyrian army. You see, the Bible and archaeology, they teach us that Jerusalem's water supply came from a spring. There was a spring that, of water that, that was found just outside the city walls. And King Hezekiah recognized that this spring was very vulnerable. And if an army like Sennacherib's came, it would be vulnerable to destruction and it would destroy their water supply and Jerusalem would be no more. They wouldn't have the means to live there if that spring was stopped up. And so in one of the greatest engineering feats of ancient times, he set forth people that dug from opposite sides of the mountain. One from inside Jerusalem and one from outside Jerusalem. It was so precise that they came and they met one another in the middle and they were only off by a couple inches. And this tunnel that went underneath the city of Jerusalem, uh, it was constructed from the Gihon Spring. It went under the city walls, which spans over half a kilometer that they dug and met one another at the exact same point. And then it came to the Pool of Siloam where it provided an abundant water supply of spring water for the people that were trapped inside the city. And so then Hezekiah, he covered the original spring and he disguised it so that no invading army would, would be able to use its water supply and no invading army would be able to stop it up and prevent the people from getting that water. And so it might be that he's referring to that spring that God had provided for the people uh, during the days of, of, well, that had always been there, but then that stream that went through that tunnel that Hezekiah had built. Whatever the case, uh, it's a tribute to God's provision. God is the one who helps us. God is the one who provides. Because in the next line, he draws our attention to the presence of the Most High God being in Jerusalem. He says in verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters His voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. You see, when the presence of God was later removed from Jerusalem, in Ezekiel he pictures the Spirit of God leaving the temple and leaving the temple grounds and eventually leaving Jerusalem altogether. And God showed how His presence had left the city because of their sin. When the presence of God was later removed from Jerusalem, the protection was also removed from the city and it fell in 586 B.C. But the reason why the city would not be moved was because God was in the midst of it. 
confidently the psalmist declares that God would help at the break of morning. And if this was actually written in the days of Hezekiah, then quite literally that did happen. And that's exactly what happened that next morning. See, through the night, the angel of the Lord put to death, we're told, 185,000 from the camp of Sennacherib. The king withdrew in defeat, and, and then he went back home and he was later assassinated by two of his own sons. Verse 7 consists, though, of, of eight Hebrew words uh, that highlight the swiftness in which God would complete his the, the, the swiftness in which God completes his work. The nations rage. They make noise. They clamor. But kingdoms fall. They offer an appearance of great pomp and glory, but then they're gone. However, our God lifts his voice and the land melts. The allusion is to the thunder of his voice. And so what's the conclusion of it all? Our God's with us. Our God is with us. Therefore, he's our fortress. 500 years ago, Martin Luther read this psalm, and he took an old bar tune that people were singing down at the local, the local uh, tavern, and uh, he took that bar tune and he put new words to it based on this psalm. And he wrote what you know as a mighty fortress is our God. It was based on what he read here. Like Martin Luther and like Hezekiah, like many others who have gone before us, do you ever feel like the nations are in an uproar? Do you feel like our own nation is raging? The kingdoms totter. But what does Psalm 46 say to us? The Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, is with us. The God who protected Jacob, He is the one who is our fortress. He's our strong refuge. And if God is with you, then He still promises to supply your needs like a river that makes glad the cities of God. The third stanza the psalmist continues to describe the work of God in accomplishing his purposes. It's almost like little children are anticipating their Christmas presents and Christmas morning when we're told this. Verse 8, come, behold the works of the Lord. Get ready. Come look at this. This is exciting. How he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. So you see, when the sun rose that next morning for Hezekiah and Isaiah and the people of Jerusalem, the Israelites arose from their positions to look over the city wall and thinking that destruction was about to come, that the siege works would be close by. But when they looked over the wall, they were astonished to see the victory that was won. Their refuge had stood firm and had even been shattered. The enemy had been shattered without one man lifting his sword that day. It was done. And so then the psalmist issues a command for his audience. He says in verse 10, Be still. And know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Uh, it's one of my favorite Bible verses. I think we've had it on a plaque or uh, different, different things. I had it in my office at one point, I think. Uh, it's a beautiful verse, a verse of great comfort, but it's also one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. We, um, when we hear this verse, we oftentimes think of warm fuzzies, quiet ponds, my Little Pony having tea with her favorite Care Bear. 
But what's the point that's being made here in Psalms? You see, quiet and solitude, they, they have a place for us to refocus. We need that, don't we? We need times of quiet and rest. Um, oftentimes, God gives us that. He provides that. Uh, often, uh, we need to pursue quietness and, and, and make a change from all the busyness that, that's all around us and just find some time to, to pray and to read God's Word. But here, in this passage, he's referring to something a little bit different. You see, God's being a little bit more assertive than that. Pardon my colloquialism, but God is basically saying here, just shut up for a minute. Okay? I know my kids are in shock. We're not supposed to say that word in our house. They've all graduated, so I can say it now, right? Is that how it works? Maybe not. Okay. Um, He says, stop. Just stop. Let go Stop being afraid. Stop worrying. Let go of the grip that you have on all these things that you have no control over. But not only do we need to stop in our tracks, the emphasis then, uh, when we see two verbs like this that coordinate together, Kind of like Hendiades where you have two nouns that have the word and between them. When you see two verbs like this, they, they, they emphasize one thing, but the emphasis is on the second verb. The, the first one calls us to certain action, but we need to pay attention to what he says in the second verb. He says, stop and know. K-N-O-W. The first command to stop, to be still, it leads us to the primary objective here in the passage. This is what Psalm's been leading us to. Know Who is God? Know that He is our strong refuge. Know that He controls the world situation. The verse commands us to release our grip and then to know three things. Number one, he says, know that He is God. And that means that you are not. You're not. Know that after all the politics, after the revolutions, after the wars, after all the chaos that comes into our world, He remains God. He remains in control. He stands above the rise and the fall of the stock market. He never loses a grasp of the weather and what yields your crop are going to produce. Know that He is God. Secondly, he says he will be exalted among the nations. Know that he will be exalted among the nations. As great of a comfort it is that that he is our strong refuge, let us never forget that this is not about us. It's not about our own country. I I love the United States, but this is not about the rise and fall of the USA. It it, it has always been about him. And, And so... To think that this is about my glory, about my country's glory, as much as, as we love these things, we must remember that He will be exalted among the nations. It is about Him. Know that He will be exalted. And three, to reiterate the point, He repeats, I will be exalted in the earth. My friends, you and I are going to pass away. The, the time that we're here on this planet, on this earth, it's short. It's brief. We're here we're gone. We leave a legacy for our children and our grandchildren. 
perhaps even beyond that. But my friends, you and I will pass away. We will endure trials and loss, joy and success. But through all of it, He will always be our help. He will always be our refuge. And He will be exalted in the earth. And then He reminds us in verse 11, the Lord Almighty is with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so we see that God is our protector in verses 1-3. through He helps us in our distress. He's also our provider, the one who supplies everything that we need in verses 4-7. through And He's also the God who is our presence in verses 8-11. through He is with us. Though He is God above all nations, powers, and authorities, He remains with us. For Israel, He made His presence in Jerusalem, the city of God. And He dwelt among His people. Today, He resides in each believer. And He has promised us, us promised us, is that a word? Can I say, that's really bad grammar. He promised us that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are His, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and found mercy at the cross, then He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. As I consider, considered this passage, I ask myself a few questions. First, where do I find my security? When life hits with full force, where do you seek shelter? Do you find it in sleep? In food? Your cell phone, the latest gadget? Do you look for your help in relationships that you've placed before God? Is it TV, books, your favorite sports, newest game? He is the only refuge that will remain. He's the only refuge that will remain strong when all the others crumble away. Also, I asked, what, what do I need to cease? He commands us, be still. Stop. Be quiet for a second. What, what do I need to cease? What, what's all the noise in my life that's hindering from me from acknowledging the exaltation of my God? What worries do I need to let go of and release? He's still in control and there's nothing that I can do about worrying. Worrying. I cannot add a, a one day to my life by stewing over my difficulties. And so I, I need to stop checking the news feed for a minute. I need to stop fretting over the problems that are so much bigger than I am. We need to release what's captivating your attention and bearing upon your soul. Remain diligent and be a good steward. But stop letting it eat away at you and know that God will be exalted in the earth. Knowing that He is God, how does that change your outlook? How does it change the way that you look upon your difficulties? It should change everything about it. Even if everything in this life were to collapse and crumble around us, our strong refuge remains. He is God. We are not. He is holy. 
He is good. He is righteous and just. And He will be exalted among the nations. He will be exalted in the earth. Let us pray. Father God, we, we are grateful for Your hand upon this world and upon our lives. We're grateful that You are God who will be exalted. We are grateful that You are a God who is over the nations. But even more than all of this, we are grateful that You are God who has chosen to dwell with Your people. You've chosen to know us and chosen us to know You. You dwell in our midst. Your Spirit dwells in our own lives. And so we look to You. You are our protection. You are our help in times of great need. You're an ever-present help. We know that You will be exalted among the nations, but Father, my prayer right now in each one of our hearts is that You would be exalted in our hearts in the way that we live for You today. The way that we serve You the way that we act towards the person that's sitting right next to us, the way that we love, the way that we care, the way that we show compassion, the way that we live, love truth, the way that we trust you when life gets difficult. So Lord, help, help us to be, to remember, and to know that you are God and you will be exalted. Amen. If you would please stand and let's close our service together by singing Turn Your Eyes. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory.
and see Christ the Lion awake. What a glorious dawn, fear of death is gone, for we carry his life in our veins. Jesus, to you we glory and our prize. We adore you, behold you, our Savior ever true. Oh, Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. Turn your eyes to the heavens. Our King will return for His own. Every knee will bow, every tongue will shout, All glory to Jesus alone. Jesus, to you we lift our eyes. Jesus, our glory and our prize. We adore you, behold you, our Savior ever true. Oh, Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. Jesus, to you we lift our eyes. Jesus, our glory and our prize. Jesus, we turn our eyes to you. Oh, Jesus, we turn our eyes to invite you all to stay for both of those things. If you would, we'll go ahead and pray 